Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. To that end, I speak to lots of writers of all different stripes um, and I also speak to some people in the publishing industry and some psychologists and sometimes I look at your first pages, your the listeners' first pages and give some feedback and sometimes I just talk about what's going on with me. Today is a chat with the uh, poet and playwright Luke Wright. He also happens to be one of my very best friends and a guy I love very, very much. Um, he popped round and I've wanted to chat to him for ages and I'm really glad he agreed to do it. And we talked about, he's like one of the first, we're going to get into this, but he's like one of the first people like I met at university through Creative Writing Society. He was kind of one of my gang when I was kind of starting out somebody a kind of kindred spirit who had the same kind of silly dream that we would do some writing and we would make a life for ourselves with our words and um it's really really nice to talk to him about that and writing poetry for performance and he gets into all sorts of stuff about who we write for and why we write and where our influences come from and I mean, we in the broadest sense, not just me and him, but like what, you know, how you decide what you're going to write, which is like such a huge question and not one actually that, you know, has been directly tackled on the show very much before. You know, we come come at it sort of like from the side occasionally, but it's really, really nice to talk about that, how you decide what you're going to do, who you're trying to please, how you discover your voice, the different ways that you might do that. And how what you do and what you think your voice is and what you try to do with your work, how that can change over time, over your career and kind of um, the different stages and the different, I guess, strategies that you apply with your work. Even though, you know, Luke started out doing very kind of like comedic political stuff and he's kind of like shifted and he even does a couple of his poems at the end of the show, which is really nice and something I should get more authors on the show to do because it's really great for you to hear their work anyway i think you're going to really enjoy this one i think there's lots of really lovely uh reflection on the creative process which you know as much as i'm dead into sort of getting into uh, nouns and and verbs and sentence structure and syntax and all all that kind of gnarly cartilage of putting a sentence together that's important it's really important but sometimes it's worth asking like why we're doing it and how you come to that answer you know (laughs) i think that's really really useful and a lot of writers have got answers to that but like giving you ways to actually reflect on that yourself really really useful so luke writes the guy on the show today and i'll put give you a, a link to his uh his twitter where you can, and his website so you can go and check his work out um aside from that how am i i'm not gonna do a big intro about how i'm feeling at the moment maybe that's for another episode maybe it's just not something i'm gonna share at the moment i'm working on this book about me and anxiety and panic and i'm in an interesting place with it right now interesting in heavy inverted commas the way that my dad used to describe someone as having just done an interesting piece of driving 
Um, yeah, funny thing, life, isn't it? Anyway, uh, I'm just going to sort of, <laughs> I'll just put that to one side for now because I don't want to spend too long before the episode kind of faffing around talking about that. But um, thank you to all of you who've been writing to me. Thank you to all of you who've been staying in touch. Uh, if you want some sort of like weekly writing tips, don't forget that I'll put a link to this in the show note, but don't forget I do my week weekly writing workout also if you just google tim claire's weekly writing workout you can sign up every friday i stick a little uh a little email in your inbox with a 10 minute writing exercise brand new and uh, some thoughts on why it's useful so I, i just send that out to like try and keep things in the world for you to do um aside from that you can buy my two books, The Honours and The Ice House, which are both out from Canongate. Links to them as well. Uh, thanks to everyone who's taken the time to go and review them on places like Amazon. And uh, thanks to everyone who's just, you know, shown their support and shared them. And finally, uh, if you want to support the show and help me keep the lights on, then you can always drop me a few uh, quid uh, to my coffee page. That's uh ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. The show doesn't have any sponsors so it's literally uh, can continue because of uh, generous donations from listeners and I really appreciate I honestly like I you know I, I, I know who who's um out there helping and I really really appreciate it. That's it I think. Just a little short intro from me today. I hope you're looking after yourself. You are wonderful and you are worthy of love and you are deeply deeply valuable because you're the only person who can live your life and as a human being I'm afraid to say you are intrinsically valuable and uh, you may not be sure that you're getting anything out of life but uh, it doesn't mean that life doesn't have demands of you nonetheless so I hope that you are able to find some ways to uh, be nice to yourself or at least laugh at things and if not, then at least I can distract you, hopefully, with today's episode. Me talking to the uh, poet and playwright, Luke Wright. I, I suppose where I'd like to start... Do you remember, like, the first... Do you remember the first thing that looked like a poem that you wrote? Uh, yeah. Well, I guess there's two... I remember in year eight, we'd been set to write a poem for homework and it had been impossibly hard and I just wasn't doing it and I was trying to get my mum to help me. I was trying to get my <laughs> mum to do my homework for me because I hated it so much. She found it felt so difficult. Um, so not not a great start to my career as a poet, but it was not long after that, um, I got a notebook for Christmas and just the simple physical fact of having a notebook, I thought I'm good, and, and I just started listening to to music quite seriously. Like I listened, started listening to Nirvana, and Blur, and Oasis, and really listening to the lyrics, particularly Damon Albarn. Like I thought his lyrics were so clever and funny, um, and that made me want to write. So I had this notebook, and I was like, "Well, I'm going to spend Christmas Day." We were in America at my at my, um, my first time I've ever, only time I've ever been away for Christmas. I think as a child, I was at my aunt's house in North Carolina, and it was. You know, you know, Christmas as it often gets dull without great British BBC TV. <laughs> so, um, so I, so I got cracking on this notebook and just started writing what I thought were lyrics. Really, they were lyrics for songs that never had any music. Um, and I carried on like that, almost writing one a day for you know for a year. And then I taught myself to play guitar. And then they, then I started setting a lot of those lyrics to music. Do you remember um, any of the content of those 
uh, of like what you were writing about. In and I'm not going to indulge in like <laughs> teen shaming because I feel like we sometimes go in quite hard on our teenage selves in a way that would look quite cruel if we were doing it directly I to think, an actual teenager. I think yeah, I think they were sort of like they were a mix of sort of Damon Albarn pastiches or Nirvana pastiches, which are very different things. They are. They? <laughs> that's like, and they're not. You know, I mean, and neither of which are like bad they're just no. that's just quite a chasm to sort of yeah. that's two horses so, so, yeah. so, simultaneously. So, so on one hand i was writing and, and do you know what it hasn't really changed on the one hand i was writing like jaunty like satire about very english things uh, or what i thought was um well was my references were all over the place and then on the other hand writing stuff that didn't make sense but sort of has sort of a va- vaguely depressed medical kind of sort of like vibe to it because kirk Cobain used a lot of sort of uh, medical metaphors and he's, can you give any Example, heart, I suppose a heart heart shaped box. Yeah, that... medicine. There's lots of stuff about med- medicine and uh, and um, sort of and medicines like like, like drugs as in, as in sort of medical drugs. Uh, like, like he's got something called lithium, hasn't he? And then um, uh, breed was originally called emodium. Um, and there's quite a lot of stuff like that. And I and I I wouldn't have noticed this, but I also was at the same time as I was getting obsessively into Nirvana, I was reading Nirvana biographies where where they would do sort of very simplistic um sort of um, literary criticism on, on these lyrics but sometimes um, that, that is like i found that when i'm reading like analysis of like hip-hop lyrics that sometimes actually i need something as simple as just going this is a reference to what this person said or this is like a location like this is this is a location in america you don't know what it is but yeah. this is what happened there i think i think all i think one of the things what things we uh, as as uh, consumers of culture do more than anything else is pretend we get stuff that we don't get I mean like you know I started doing that it was only it took me many many years to realise that actually everyone was faking it and it was alright and also sometimes if you don't get something it's probably because there's nothing to get as well I mean, I, I mean uh, the, that's the, the yeah, Doonesbury yeah. effect I call yeah. that <laughs> <laughs> you're just sort of growing up thinking I just don't understand this poem's too clever for me and then you realise no you just it's just not just this, you've, you've got it it just wasn't it just, just didn't blow your mind yeah yeah it, I, it can be sometimes it's that the poem was not very good sometimes it's that you're like reaching for some super meaning that it just isn't there and or, it is what it is or the meaning which you are getting means nothing to you at that time in your life and then you come I and I've just had the I've just reread a whole lot of um well, all, all of Philip Larkin, all you know, all, of, all of his books. You have his, I was wondering when Philip Larkin would uh, rear well, his. I, I, uh, I, I, I read Philip Larkin in my late twenties, and that was for the first time. Well, I think I, I tried to read it when I was younger, and it just was, it meant nothing to me. I read it in my late twenties and really liked certain poems, and I haven't, you know, occasionally gone back to favourite ones, but not really done it until last year. So I had sort of ten years off, you know. So going back to all those books again, it's so interesting. Some of the poems that I just I thought were like, yeah, okay, but they you know, didn't. So were just oh, like, a, like a knife in the heart, you know. Now with the with because you obviously when you come to any piece of writing, but I think particularly poetry, you bring the whole weight of your life experience with you and and the things that make you weep. I, I think I think if you read a novel, you are offering you know and and you and you have a strong emotional reaction to it. You're reacting to that character's story because the whole story's been fleshed out in front of you. A poem doesn't do that in the same way. A poem makes allusion to things, and so you're. Bring, I think I feel like you bring a lot more of your own life experience to it, uh, and so so those, so your reaction to it changes quite dramatically. What's the first poem that you can remember having like a strong emotional reaction to? Oh, or one of the first. You don't like. We're not going to go back in time and, and say actually, Luke, that's a lie. Yeah. Um. Uh. Well, I think a lot of the poetry that I first got into poetry 
when I, when I first got into poetry, and I, I was into you know, John Cooper Clark and Martin Yule and a lot of the other poets around me, I wasn't looking for poems that would make me cry, that would open up my heart. I was looking for poems that make me laugh, that were clever, that the language sparkled. And that all stuff is great. And it was really, I think, when I read Larkin in my late 20s that I started having, you know, the, the sort of reaction, the sort of thing that I look for now in poetry. You know, a, a, a knife sort of twist in the heart. So I don't know. I think Mr. Bleeny was a poem of Larkin's that I, I really loved the first time. Can I, you, uh, um, what's Mr. What's Mr. Bleeny Mr. Bleeny is, uh, um, uh, the, the narrator of the poem has been shown a small, quite depressing, sad single room that he's going to move into. And uh, he has been told by the, the landlady that this used, to be, this used to be Mr. Bleeny's rooms. He stayed the whole time he was at the bodies. The body's been the, the car works. I had to, various things I had to look up. Um, and so he, 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 as the poem progresses, he, he knows, he knows all Mr. Bleeny's habits because every time he does something, the landlady says, oh, Mr. Bleeny used to do this, he used to do that. And he kept a little piece of garden outside properly in hand. Um, and he describes the garden as tussocky and littered. Um, and um, so I know all, he basically says, I know all this about Mr. Bleeny, but whether he lay on this bed and felt like, you know, having nothing more to show for his life than a, the single bed in a, in a box room at his age meant that he was worth no more I don't know I don't know whether he felt that he, he says and and then the implication is of course that's what that's what the narrator is the narrator is lying in this box room on his own thinking is this all I amount to uh, and it's just oh god <laughs> it just taps something quite primal in me this, this, this you know I mean, probably in all of us this fear that, that we will amount to nothing that we will die alone um, but actually um the flip side of that poem, the lovely thing about that poem is, is that from the sound of the thing, Mr. Bleeny seemed quite content and was happy to take a little bit of garden properly in hand, whereas the narrator, you know, we assume it's Larkin himself, um, you know, can see nothing but but misery and and and, uh, and, and unhappiness in this place. And, and I so can see like, so, so there's two ways to look at that poem. There's lots of ways to look at that. Oh, poem. I can see like as a teenager, like it's hard to like feel the poignancy of that because you're kind of like, oh, Mr. Bleeny's got his own room. And, <laughs> wow! And is and is like and his his, his mum. He could stop. He like no one's gonna bother him. Yeah. Oh, he could go and like he <laughs> could like he could go. He could smoke cigarettes in his little bit of front garden. Yeah. Like like it's 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 funny how and I'm I'm kind of not being facetious. Yeah. It's like that that you just wouldn't yeah, so, well, so, yeah, it so wouldn't I'm, have the same. It wouldn't grip you in quite the same way. And and then you get to a point where because what do you think well, Larkin, as a teenager Larkin like li- well Larkin has this line about. Um, in it about him, I, one of his I think it's 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 all barred, or um, you know what's there, what you know when when before the light comes up and when he's lying in bed waking too early is, is the, the thing the thing that's always there lurking is death, um, and I think a lot of the darkness and a lot of the things that really sort of get us in the gut are in some way you know one or two steps removed from death, which is something you're just unable you know or, or most children and teenagers don't think about. You don't have a sense of your own mortality, or I didn't anyway. I I I felt. I had all those young men cliches of being being invincible, um, and I was interested in, in laughter. And I mean, fun would you say that Nirvana carnage. never really engaged with the no, idea think, of I death? Think, I think they, Nirvana, they do, I think but Nirvana it's... did. But I, I think it was but, but with with this sort of there was a sort of yeah. I mean, certainly uh, um, Cobain did, but um, I, what I took from it wasn't like I sat there and analysed the lyrics. I was interested to find out what the lyrics were about, uh, particularly if they referred to the soap opera of Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love's life, uh, which which appealed to me because I knew. I knew you know, I, I was interested in that, um, but uh, they um, 
you know that they represented anger and rage and, and a cleansing rage and which is something that's always it still attracts me now uh, and and particularly when you're listening to, to words over music and you can just you know and you have all the force of the music um, I mean that said I mean I, I it's not like I didn't feel emotion at, at art I mean I, I used to cry at films as a child I used to cry at the end of all films whether they were <laughs> or not I, I, I mean I, 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 I just, all films oh, yeah I remember you know, the, I remember weeping uncontrollably at the end of Edward Scissorhands when I was about eight or nine or ten or something like that I mean I just I mean you're not just like oh that's quite sad like just feeling so bereft and so sad and so miserable and again what, what's Edward Scissorhands about it's about a man who has to who is forced to be on his own forever <laughs> he can't assimilate and and uh, um, is you know is, is completely isolated and in the end has to accept his isolation and I think there is some a glimmer of hope in Edward Scissorhands I think because he he stays up in that house and 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 makes his ice sculptures and all that but I mean he's making ice sculptures of of the woman he can't be with I think at the end I think if, if I remember that film correctly um, so obviously that is a theme that is you know <laughs> which I think is a theme in, in, in a lot of my work now um, it's, um, it's something I'm feeling at the moment because I mean just split up with my partner um, in, in the last month um, that I'm sort of feeling all over again so I, I think I think that that feeling of, of, of isolation and, um, and and being alone is something that's always been shot through my uh, emotional toolkit for understanding art i think can can we and i'm not it's not i, I want to kind of get to this because it's really important but like when i first met you what you were i remember and i know i've told you this before i've recounted this um but i remember coming to uea and you and I went to the Creative Writing Society and I was very excited to to go there and finally be in a place where other people wanted to do creative writing like that in itself. Yeah. From coming from a small town was like I yeah. was the only I was like that well, I had, you know, nicknames based around r- reading. Yeah. Hey, oi, professor. <laughs> Literally. And it's like I said it in my show, by the way. I have a line about um, I have a line about how um, you know, the clever kids get mocked at school. And I said, my mate uh, comes from Porter's Head and he used to go, all right, they're a professor. Yeah, it was like, it was, and that, I mean, I wish that that was a joke, Luke, but it genuinely, <laughs> genuinely they go, um, like a way that I'd be roasted is they go, oh, Tim, Tim, do you want to come out and play football? And I'd like go look up, like, look up, like excited, like I've been accepted. And then in an American, I don't know why they choose like an American accent to be go, nah. I'm reading my book, and I mean, like, and that was the thing. It was like, it was like yeah. absolutely. But I, I, when I, so we, I got into that room, like, with where people were going to share their work, and you read out. We'd not met before, and you read out your poem, um, coming straight out of Middle, Middle England, England. <laughs> uh, and I like. It's easy to take the piss out of our early work, but I remember it being like this moment where I was like. I was like, holy shit. I oh, like, he can, he can write. And I would say like, compared to everyone of my peer group that I'd met before, you know, you were clearly significantly better. You understood how to make lines scan it. You could do some references. There was humor. Mm. But, but um, I mean, I mean, you know, not to, not to sit here and make this a, a, a drama party, but um, you know, I, I felt the same about you. <laughs> when you, read, you read out, you read out a scene. Um, uh, it was a group of young people. There was, it just it just it was it it felt like 
as good as Urban Welsh, which is, <laughs> it was about as far as uh, my, 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 my novel writing I, I think the got. first thing people think of when they... I mean, I probably was reading loads of Urban Welsh at yeah. the time, right? So, yeah. um, it was, But what I wanted to say was like... Uh, but I mean, I had a similar experience. I I, I went into that, that that room, and although I didn't keep you on going to creative writing society that year, because I didn't really like the third years. I found them a bit sort of, you know, because we were we were you know the yeah. first years then. Um, I, I did, and and was continued to be uh, uh, just utterly amazed by 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 just a, a, a number of people who who were around us. I think we were very lucky in that respect, weren't we? That, well, there's that, people that we now. Were... I mean, we can say this with sort of without we're feeling like let. Uh, reasonably non-assholeish because a lot of people that we we think of in that first year then when we met have all gone on to be writers are, are like yeah. professionals so yeah. they were at least of a level where they've now been able to feed yeah. themselves off the back of their yeah. ability and they were committed to it and they've worked very hard but what I want to ask about is that you were talking about how in as a you know this teenage sense of like writing about kind of like a cleansing rage or being very mm. funny with these Damon Albarn things and I just mm. wanted to talk about that at that time you weren't writing sort of poignant portraits of sort of small uh, moments you're writing about something else no. and I think very effectively in your writing quite pieces of kind of like well, social broadsides and I wondered if you could talk about that side well, of actually work. that poem you referenced coming straight out of Middle England was the first thing I wrote at UEA and it, it, and it was for me I thought it was like you know this this it was a very long poem it was about a thousand words long and it was this sort of it didn't all, but it, it was it was a sort of a, a sort of a state of the state of the person address. It was like you said about to me, us. But... You said this is kind of a poem. I remember you like how you <laughs> how you introduced it. You said this is kind of a poem about rebelling when you got nothing to rebel against. Right. Yeah. Which I think is still something that is, <laughs> is basically what my new play is about. <laughs> I mean, we find it's you know it's interesting to go back because it was like oh, I think I found my themes very early on. Um, uh, so, so not writing. Yes, yeah, so I, knew, I think when I first started writing, so I wrote these lyrics, which were sort of a mixture of things. And I was every every once in a while I'd write a poem, um, and the poems they were they were poems, not lyrics, because they didn't rhyme and they didn't make sense. Right, they were <laughs> they were just words. Right, um, that I thought sounded deep and meaningful and dark. And I remember showing one of these poems to my English teacher, Philip Hethcott Barrow. Not that we'd ever call him Philip. Uh, <laughs> Barry, um, who um, I liked. I mean, he was quite a strict teacher, and he was he was quite religious as well, which I, I was less keen on. But uh, I remember once. Uh, uh, the thing I always remember about him is once um, we were all sitting. He was our form tutor in my last year at um, secondary school, and uh, my friend James Ratnidge came into the class late um, with his shirt untucked and his bag all sort of hanging off his shoulder, and <laughs> Mr. Barrow turned towards him and went. Oh, another paragon of sartorial excellence. <laughs> <laughs> Marked him down late. <laughs> I didn't know what paragon or sartorial meant, but I just knew that was funny. Um, so anyway, I showed him this. I had showed him this um, poem, and he just ripped it to shreds in front of my eyes. Like he was just like, "What does this mean? This is nonsense. What are you even saying here? What's this? What's that?" And it just made me feel like an idiot. I mean, he was completely right because I was like, "Oh, I don't know." It's sort of you know, it was a bit like um, you know um. Uh, that Fry and Laurie sketch where uh, Hugh Laurie wins the poetry competitions and Stephen Fry's going, what are, what are these with these bubbles of gas and wind and you know, <laughs> time falls wanking to the floor? What is it? <laughs> it, was, it was a bit like that, except I couldn't back it up in the way that Hugh Laurie does in that sketch. Um, and I think not long after that, um, so I knew there was a truth in that. And then not long after that, I saw John Cooper Clark and Martin Yule and Ross Sutherland read their poetry. And then it was like, oh, these poems should just be about something. And I found that incredibly liberating because rather than trying to write about the meaning of life, um, I could just write about 
you know, hating the doors or liking Oasis or, you know, or, or like the townies that I went to school with. Um, and so I found that really liberating and I was good at that, you know, relatively. I, w I was good at that in a way that I wasn't good at trying to write about my feelings. And so I just, I, I, the story I told myself is like, I don't like that kind of poetry. That's wanky. What I'm going to write about is real poetry that makes people cheer in pubs. And I sort of lent really, really hard into that and, it's, and, and, and did so for a number of years. But I have slowly been, you know, beginning to write more, more reflective pieces for a number of years. It's really accelerated in the last couple. So what was your question? I've gone no, off the point. No, you, because that's exactly what it, that's exactly what it was. And I think that I was just thinking about how difficult it is. I know you've got some experience of like, you've got quite a lot of experience of like teaching teenagers, right? Like mm. you get to speak to people who are, you know, finding their voice or yeah. finding their sense, whether they'll be poets or not, are finding their sense of self-expression and, and getting a sense of aesthetics and what is good. Mm. And I find the hard, I don't know what your experience is. I was wondering if you could reflect on it. Um, that one of the hardest things is teaching someone who is good enough to like, as I was at a certain point, to throw up that chaff of like illusions and the time falls wanking to the floor, these kind of yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. who can, who, who's got a good vocabulary, probably enough to make an English teacher who's kind of like teaching them go, oh, you're very talented and kind of give them a reasonable grade for it. But at the same time, it's to like push them through that into like writing something very simple that is personally meaningful to them rather yeah. than them simulating a poem you you um you you made a good point in one of your previous episodes when you were talking to Kerry Hudson you said that uh, you were writing sort of infantile sort of farty sort of sweary stuff and then you then you wrote a, a poem that was all about you know about like battery hens and yeah <laughs> and the greed of humanity and they were like this this tim is good which obviously it wasn't because it was it was it was cloying and awful but they felt like it it, it, it was in some way worthy uh, it was it was moral uh, ignoring of course oscar wilde's uh, um, um, statement that the art can't be moral or immoral it's simply good or bad they e should have they should have really read a bit more of their own so-called canon uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, and actually and then, then the kids the, your, your peers didn't think that was good at all and I, I think there's I thought that was a really good anecdote to um, you know I, 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 it wasn't like the teachers were suddenly enthused by my uh, by my sort of shouting and swearing um, but it but it was really exciting for me um, but also but also you know I, I did that thing which I think all writers should do which is they find someone you like and just rip them off for a bit. That's fine, especially when you're young. I mean, maybe not when you're in your mid-30s and you're embarking on your novelistic career. I mean, I think, you know, but I, I think when you're young, it's totally fine. It's like, I really like John Cooper Clark, so I'm just going to take, take one of his, I'm going to take one of his actual poems, take all of his words out and put my words in his place. And then slowly your voice sort of just comes from Yeah, that. and I'd say also, like, there'll always be, even if you're trying to slavishly copy something, there'll always be some failure in craft that, mistranslate yes, some of it, their work that actually introduces however to, uh, hard mm. you're trying to copy will accidentally introduce originality uh, yeah completely and i was always a very bad mimic i, I wasn't i wasn't a good mimic uh, um ross was always a better mimic than, than, than i was and I, I think it might make it harder for him to sort of come out count come out well, the he, end of that, he is originally from the north you yeah. see luke so <laughs> um but um our friend uh, uh joel stickley was was is an excellent mimic he's it's it was such a talented writer uh, that I, th I think it found him, it took him longer to find his own voice actually as a, as a result of that. And actually, I think my ineptitude 
uh, or maybe just my self-obsession, because after a while I sort of lost interest in the person I was copying. I couldn't think of anything but me. Um, so I think um, having, a, having a strong voice. I, I remember being at UEA and um, someone telling me, maybe it was Helen Ivory or Julia Bell or someone like that who was sort of around the early days when I was still a student and they were older, were talking about finding your voice. So you've got to find your voice as a, as a poet. And I used to worry so hard about finding my voice, unaware that I'd found it like almost immediately. Uh, it, you know, I look back on it now, and I think I even even and they, you know they're they're, bad, they're they're badly written poems with loads of things that would have been cleared up in a single good edit, and just some awful, terrible insults and uh, insights and prejudices and stuff like that. So I'm not saying they were good, but they were unmistakably me almost right from the word go. Uh, and, I, and I and I remember all these years of worrying that I hadn't found my voice yet because that's a thing that people say to you in creative writing seminars. Oh, you've got to find your voice. And I don't think they've number one. They don't they don't know you well enough to tell you what your voice is. You know, so I think that's a, that's a kind of that's a nonsense and a bullshit. You know? I I think me and Joe, me and Joe Dunthorne shared like a piece of crit that one of his friends had got on a back on a short story that um we were just like what does this mean? Where someone I'm not, you know I won't say who gave the uh, feedback, but um where it said it was from a, t- a tutor saying um it said good. However, there is an there is emotion here, but we need to see you more. And it was like a fiction short story, and it's just like how oh I'll just implement that. Uh, here's me. What is that? What the fuck does that mean? You could put that you could put that on anything well, and now, now that I know people who are creative writing tutors and I know I know and I, and I hear so I might go for the drink with them at some point and I'll say, Oh god, I've got loads of marketing to do today. I'm just <laughs> gonna try and get through it tonight. <laughs> You know, there is, there is, but you don't, you don't imagine that. I, well, I never imagined that. I sort of, I'm very accepting of institutions and power and stuff like that. It's really worrying. I think. Well, I, I, I'd I, say I, the reason that marking... I definitely wouldn't have joined. I definitely, don't think, I don't think I would have joined the resistance. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I'm going to be honest about myself. I'll be like, um, so I, I, I think at that point, I just thought they were infallible, and so I think, I, I think I was far too reverent of, of the, of the, you know, the powers that be. On the one hand, but on the other hand, I was like, I, I didn't do the creative writing poetry module. Mm. Like, UEA even though poetry was the, the only thing I wrote I was like I, I don't need to know about poetry I know what I'm doing with poetry which you know was a, 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 a mad and a, an arrogant thing to say on one hand but also on the other hand it's like at least it was quite good that I had that belief in myself and, and, I, and I did know what I wanted to do you know I, I did know the kind of poetry I wanted to write and I was very aware I'd seen Ross do Ross Sutherland this is do that module a couple of years before and he stopped writing poems that I liked for for about six months and started writing poems that I thought were a bit boring and serious and worthy and he was, he was trying to like write for the page and I was like writing for the page. It was basically, was basically stripping out all the stuff that was good about your poems and making them boring. And and, and I, actually, I to an extent, I still think that can often be the way. Not because I think page poetry boring. Of course, I don't think that. I mostly read poems on the page. You know, I don't you know go to a lot of gigs anymore. But um, but I do think quite often, when, if you are a stage poet, uh, or that that's how you started off, when you try and tame yourself for the page, I think that the mistake a lot of people make, and I've made this as well, is that you just you take out all the fun and joy and you know and 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 yourself and you just try and so and you try and sober up your work it's less it's less to do with the actual medium of the page and more to do with our assumptions about what page the the page demands right and i think it's not seen enough sort of yeah exactly enough enough examples of stuff that you like which is which is couldn't be said for now because i think there is a this a real joy and excitement and playfulness and lots of what we, what we always call wet writing you know yeah 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 yeah, yeah. In, in poetry at the moment which which sort of trans which successfully transcends you know um the, 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 those two worlds of, of, of reading out I, I think yeah i think there's parts which of, there wasn't i don't think when we 20 years ago well i i think 
you know, for as much as, um, you know, the internet is, oh God, it's the most banal thing you to say. Well, I think the internet. internet has got some bad things and some good things. Oh, really? But I think, um, that's much, a, wow. Much, I, uh, much like life in that I, way. Isn't I, it? It's <laughs> almost like it's made up of people on it. <laughs> I mean, cars, they're kind of good, but they can be bad if one runs you over. Yeah, if, it's, if, if, a, if a bad driver's in one. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I like them when I'm going from place to place. I don't like them when I'm crossing the road and one goes over me. Excellent. Let's have some more insights later. Yeah, <laughs> and the internet is rather like that. No, I, I, yeah. I suppose like what it's allowed, you know, I, I know like Instagram poetry is not a great example of poetry in a, in some aspects. Poetry but... about Instagram. I love it. <laughs> uh, but the only poems I want to read now are specifically about how Instagram works. But I, I, but I do think that there's like, like people are actually potentially exposed to more, and some of those people will kind of like go deeper, and that can be really good. And um, there's ways of people sharing links to poems, and there's just like a lot of scope for people reading a poem-sized thing on a device, and people having yeah, access to uh, that. It's just, it's, it, it means that people get get poetry more easily. Um, but also it means that, that, you know, I doubt there are any teenagers or far fewer teenagers out there like you were on your own feeling like that there are no other writers in the world. Yeah. I, I think it, I think it, it, it connects people. Very young. The other thing about it, I mean, the, when we first started gigging sort of in, in the early 2000s, we would go to, you know, go do a gig in Bristol and everyone in Bristol would have a Bristol style of yeah. poetry they did. And then we'd go to I don't know, Manchester or where have you, a similar sort of thing. Uh, and we had our Norwich style, which was kind of, you know, certainly around the R16, we, we, we were all we were all bouncing off each other and influencing each other. Um, you don't see that in the same way anymore because you have, you know, kids by the time they start going down to um, poetry open mic nights, they've, they've, they've consumed hours and hours and hours of, of poetry on YouTube. And so you, what, what you tend to get now is much more like you get in bands is that you, you see uh, young poets imitating the, the popular poets of the time you know you know you go to every single city in the UK and you have someone who sounds a bit like Kate Tempest or a bit like Holly McNish or what have you so um so so that so that sort of it, it sort of encourages a ubiquity of style in a way it's, it's like in instead of I, I think when we were coming up it was a bit more like as it was a bit more like Australia, right? Where you have this island that's like been separated from the re- and and it, uh, from the rest of the world, and um, all this evolution happens. So you get like marsupials appearing on it because it's not connected to other land masses. Yeah. Now there's been like an ice age. All the land masses are like connected up into one super Pangaea, yeah, yeah. and all the things and and basically whatever. I, I mean, like, Evo Psych is not my area, Luke, so, like, I'm <laughs> yeah, running out of steam no, no, with this analogy. But um, certainly we could they could be, like, little pools of weirdness. I mean, my favourite thing about the UK scene is eccentricity and weirdness. I don't mean, like, I don't want it necessarily to be bad. I like yeah. quality as well. Yeah, yeah. But I like it when... And so this actually leads me on to my next question to but, you. I, I, you know, I, 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 I go to poetry gigs to discover people like A.F. Harold. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or Rachel Pantechnicon. Yeah. You know, just like, no, nothing was like that. And that was very exciting. And I kind of wonder a little bit where those sort of guys are. Well, now. we're, I mean, we're not going to a lot of the grassroots gigs anymore, Luke. So they may no. still be there. They're no, not, we're, yeah. we're more likely to be exposed to like you know, I do, a button I do, poetry I, video that's I had do, a million and a half yeah, hits. I do more, I do more, um, gigs than ever before but i see less poets than ever before yeah because we're not doing five minutes yeah. in an open mic so what even is... there and even though even even then when i'm when i'm when i you know i'm often get support acts and i do go to some nights and stuff like that I, you know I, th- I feel like some of the weirdness has been ironed out 
So what I want to ask, but I can't back that up, so I'm just gonna leave that. As yeah, yeah, no, I, no, I, I know you. No, but you did say I feel like, so yeah. that's fine. I, what I wanted to ask you about was, um, how do you make the transition from writing stuff that's kind of like going, you know, you're like lampooning celebrities. You're, Which is uh, all I did for a while, yeah. Yeah, but no, I'm not. I'm Twenty trying, years ago, I'm know, trying yeah. to say this yeah. like not, yeah. not. I'm not being rude. I'm just saying like, or you know, uh, you know, pointing out inequities with the government or whatever like that. But they're quite like projecting anger outwards. Yeah. How do you make a transition from that to something where you are allowing yourself to um, be vulnerable or exhibit? vulnerability on stage because uh, you know I, we did loads of gigs where we were, we were at music festivals mm. there'd be like a uh you know we'd be at latitude late at night there'd be people in the crowd everyone the crowd were just wasted yeah. we were drunk we'd go up like you'd shout up and we would go yeah we were, we were and it was it, and it was fucking great yeah, yeah, we yeah. were the drunkest but yeah. like it was it was great like for what it was it did the thing that it it was right for the time and it's very different to go up on stage and do some poems where you are talking about something um, quiet or poignant or something where you, it takes time to build a story. You're not just yeah. doing three lines joke, three lines joke. But I, I think, I think, okay, so yeah. And so I, I think I always had that. I always, I've always written, you know, about my feelings in some, but you know, at, at times it's been, you know, paper thin, like one a year sort of thing, but that, it's always been there to an extent, right from when I wrote, you know, lyrics to songs that didn't exist in my bedroom you know I would write about my feelings and my frustrations so I've always had that um and I think a lot a lot of it was a I wasn't so good at doing that stuff as, as already discussed um and b there wasn't you know it wasn't the sort of stuff that sort of killed with an audience right especially if you're doing a lot of those sort of gigs that's right? quite a brutal like e ecology isn't it like what fits into the set yeah what fits into the set what kind of sets are you doing have you got 20 minutes to wow some people um uh I, so a number of things i guess um so i've been touring with john Cooper clark for um seven eight years you know but even you know for at least sort of 10 i mean i've known him for 20 but like yeah uh, even 10 years ago i was doing support slots for him but it's just been more, more of a regular thing since 2012 and mike gary who he was the he was the other sort of main tour support you know he all of his poems are uh, whilst the whilst they're very sort of um you know that they can they can hold a room they are they are serious and they're about his you know his mental health frailties and uh, and things that things that sort of you know worry him and you know they're quite personal often. Are they just yeah, Mike well. Gary's got a lot of stage presence, I would say, yeah, but, and, and, but and, he's and, not often not attempting to ingratiate himself with an yeah, audience. He'll just he'll do it again. He goes, "Hey, we like a bit of that, don't we? You like a bit of that." Um, and it, and and so I think a little bit, and I saw people respond really well to that. Um, annoyingly, well, not annoyingly, really, because I, mean, I love I love doing those gigs anyway. But, but in a way, if Mike's just gone on and done like twenty minutes of dark, sad stuff, I I feel even more pressure to go on there and be and be like the warm up guy and get everyone laughing. Because if you do a bit a bit of dark and then they don't go, you go, you like. I thought we liked a bit of dark, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, sometimes the audience don't like a bit of dark. Mike is just telling them they like a bit of dark. And, and Mike, Mike could fucking, you know, <laughs> Michael could sell rain to his fellow Mancunians. Mm. Uh, in fact, he frequently does. <laughs> um, so I mean, he's just, you know, he he could, he's very convincing. And, um, um, so so I think in a way, and I, I definitely remember, and I say I've always written, the, I, I I would know then that it was worth doing at least. 
one more honest, reflective poem in the set um, because I think actually, um, just from a you know, so so I so, so I realise actually people people they're they're the, they're the ones that people go. Oh, I'd love to read that one again. So actually, it was really good if he were then selling merchandise afterwards. Actually, and and I was also keen to sort of show that that I had a that I had a I had a broad range of stuff. And I do think I do think I've got a, a broad a broad range. I, I can write, you know, yeah, I you know I I, I can do that. And I re- I started to realise that that was. Um, you know, because I'm always thinking about you know, when you write when you write the poems, it's entirely about making the piece of art that you want to make. I don't think about the stage. I don't think about it's it's say ability anything like that. I, I entirely write what I want to write, and then I have a very different kind of head when I come to putting on a set. Um, and I and I, and I want I want to be as good as possible on stage. I, I want people to have an amazing experience. I want them to feel moved and changed. I want them to, you know, on one level, I want them to then come back and see me do another show. Because it, it is a it is a horrible experience coming off stage and feeling somewhere inside yourself that maybe you're a bit self indulgent. I've had that where I've gone. I've where I didn't. I where I felt like in my heart I chose something for me not because I thought it was good for the set at the time or something like that. and I, But I don't know, because I think actually choosing something that will go down as well as possible is 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 choosing for you. And actually, I think sometimes true, yeah. sometimes choosing a, 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 more, a more difficult poem that you're not going to get any emotional whoosh off, it actually is better for the audience sometimes. So I, I don't know those things. And I, for I, I'll make jokes and I'll be like, this poem... You won't like this as much as I like this. This one, and I, I had this joke. I said, "This one's for me." I've, I've done three in a row that you've really liked. Like, I, I've got ears, guys. I can tell. Like, so, so this one's for me. You're not going to like this as much as me, but I'm doing this for me because I find this very amusing. <laughs> that's when I do one trick bishop, which is a poem that I just adore. It's really silly, but it's not. I don't know. Actually, I think I think the thing is the thing is that poem does actually go down quite well now because I think my sheer effusiveness for it. But but I, I like to play around with that anyway. But I think the the, the point is I started to realise that one of the things I could do well w- was show a, a, a range, and and people started to say it to me more and more. And it got mentioned in reviews that you know that, that I could make you laugh and I could make you cry. And I I always think that's one of the great things about live poetry is that, that you can have they have these these two very different reactions to it and um you know if you're just going to make people laugh uh, you know i would have had a more successful if i'd done straight stand-up <laughs> there is at least a bit better career path there the, so so i i think i think i've always known that's the case that you, that, that you can do different things with poetry that you can be angry and, and, and galvanizing and you can and you can be poignant and, and, and make people feel sad and um and that you can balm people emotionally but you can also make them laugh and i think i think you know if you're displaying all that in a set then then you're giving them what I think is a, is just just one of the, the greatest live art experiences you can have, and, and and I want I want to do that. But I want to know. I suppose what I'm asking you, and I'm asking this from like a personal perspective as well, because I've sort of done much less live stuff since Suki was born. It's just you know mm. it, I've just been in that kind of like birth to two and a half sort of period where mm. you it you yeah. kind of go away from the world a little bit and then you're able yeah, 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 yeah. to come back out it will come back to you my friend yeah and what i want to know because i think it's really interesting is how do you do that wire walk where like i know when i'm doing a poem that's funny that's got beats that's got laugh lines right i've got a really really easy sense of whether it's going well or badly yeah. right like when <laughs> like when you used to do your poem i remember when you used to do jean-claude gendarme um it would have the line we would know basically that our canary in the mine shaft for like whether this gig was going to go well or whether we were fucked yeah. was when you did um uh are you pleased to see me or is that a truncheon 
it was a truncheon, right? Which is like, if the, like, that always went down well. And how well it went down was like an almost perfect barometer for how the gig how was going to go. Going, yeah, yeah. And I think there was one gig where it, it like barely got a titter. And, and we, we were like, we were, oh, oh shit. <laughs> like, that's it. Like, that's yeah, yeah, fucking, yeah, yeah. that's like, that's like you just like fired the nukes at Godzilla and yeah, it didn't yeah. go down. You're like, oh no, we, we haven't got anything else. That was our best shot. So what I'm, but, the, but, but even then. You then know, and I say this is like someone with like anxiety, anxiety, a lot of it is about control. And even if you're like fucked, you're like, I've got good predictions that what this, I can emotionally brace myself for this. But when you're doing something that is sort of more multivalence in terms of emotions, or maybe it's just getting people to listen and be emotionally engaged, I'm, I want to ask about how you have, how you have learned to bridge that experience of basically being on, being on stage kind of like born up on a, a cloud of trust basically okay. that this is going well, well I've, i have three parts to my answer the first one is to recount an anecdote which i think you recounted to me but we were at uh, uea uh, and um there was there was an un- unnamed uh, guy there who was who's i mean he wasn't that- like that makes him sound mysterious we know who it is <laughs> yeah. you're just we're anonymizing him. Not name and shame him but he he'd started dabbling in writing he wasn't he wasn't much cop um and uh, we were having a conversation about this exact conversation how do you know it's going well and he, he barged and he went, when I read that poem last week, three people came up to me after and told me that they made him cry. That's how you know. <laughs> and then, so, then they vanish. And yeah. I, I, there's some truth in that. So if you've read it before and it's gone well and people have told you how, 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 how it's really moved them. So, you, so I think the first time I started doing poem, I think I, think I said this poem, I've still got this poem, uh, I haven't burned it, called Kelvin to Liverpool Street. It's about my dad. Uh, and I really liked it. So this sort of comes on to my, my second point is that I, I really liked it. I, I believed in it. I thought it was, I just thought it was a, one of the best things I'd written. I, I, you know, I really adored it. I, I feel less effusive about it now, but I was really pleased with it. And so my sheer love of that poem carried me through. And then people started telling me afterwards that that, 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 they, that was their favourite thing. And that really surprised me. I was like, oh, didn't you like the one about, about the, the Essex line? And they no, we like that one. And I was like, oh, okay. Great. So like, um, and then the more that sort of thing happens, the more you begin to trust your own instincts. The, the other thing is, I, I, the third point is, I, I can feel an audience coming towards me and moving away from me. And I hadn't had a bit of a, an argument, not an argument, that's too strong. But Fight. I, I, had, I had a punch up uh, with our, uh, our mutual friend Molly Naylor about this the other day, because I, 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 I did the first run through of a, a work in progress of a new play. And I said, I just felt the audience just slightly drifting from me in the second half of that. And she went, that's, that's, that's bullshit. That's a story you're telling yourself. I said, no, it's really not. I can tell. She went, I was in that audience. And I said, yeah, but you were in that audience having your own personal experience. Like, like I was the one, I was looking at all of you and I was looking at your body language and I can just tell, I mean, people at the first were kind of, you know, and I know it's, it's a long piece, it's an hour, but by the end, they, I could just, I could feel their energy. And, and this, that sounds really sort of... I don't. I'm afraid, I, but I, I really, I, I've been doing this for. I've been doing a hundred plus gigs a year for twenty years. I, I can feel when an audience is coming towards me, and it's, you know, I don't think there's anything airy fairy in that. Like that, you've got. And she, she just loads of people. Yeah. Well, I would say that you can make certainly make. I, I'm sure that it's possible to make mistakes and misread it. I'm sure that there yeah. are confounding variables in like yeah, if you're and, if you like if I was like, really hungover and I'd just been like in nearly like hit another car on the way to a gig 
then my energy coming up on stage yeah. would be, I'd be more likely to be seeing. Well, she said to me, she said those, those gigs when you have a really good gig and you get a standing ovation, because I was, I was like, I, I can just tell, but like, you know, and, and then, and then at the end, you, you know, you do, you have, we have a very amazing response from an audience. And she said, the reason you're getting a standing ovation there is because you think the gig's going well and the audience, and the audience are feeding off your energy. And I said, well, there's, there's some, there's some truth in that. But I also think you often I, I hit a stride in the gig and I just go, I know this gig is great. I know it's going well. And I know it's different with a play. So I'm, maybe it's not the best example to say that. But I, I just, I can just feel. I, and and it's a, I don't need like the, the very obvious feedback of laughter. Um, I, I think I can tell when something's hitting. And also there's, a, there's an element of me that I don't really care. I get to a certain point where I, I know what I'm doing is good. I know how it compares to the rest of what I want to do. It's what I want to do as an artist. And I feel that in the, in the, in the medium term, uh, the work will dry up for me if, if I really what I'm doing isn't good enough. And, and so it's having that belief and going, I know this is good. I know this is the best thing I've got. And so, yeah, it's not like I'm not. I, I, I said the piss out of Tony Blair in, in, in an amusing way, uh, but but I think this is good, um, and I so I think it's a combination of all those things really. Uh, yeah, I think you're. I, th- I'm, I think it's almost you're almost certainly taking in loads of body language and processing it on a, on a level where, and I've read some research suggesting this that basically means you're just you. It's all been sort of. Um, all, all that kind of processing is downstreamed because it's so automatic from so many times. And so you're not consciously aware of it in because you wouldn't have the processing power to deliver your poems and yeah. concentrate on what you're doing. But there's part of you that is just taking all that it's in magma. and giving you a general sense back. And it's probably based on, like you say, how how far forward people are leaning. Like, um, Darren Brown said that when he's trying to... Because, you know, obviously he's doing magic and there are some... He'll say some jokes it's occasionally, not but magic, it's not... Yeah. <laughs> don't I need don't let don't I can't lose brown I, I can't I need this guy but like he said he'll just like very and obviously he's super aware of like body language and stuff mm. but he'll like subtly lower his um his volume and he can often like he'll just be aware of like there'll be like an occasional cough or sniff and if That's he lowers his one. volume if he lowers his volume sometimes people will unconsciously like hold coughs and sniffs in like hold their breath to like hear if it's going well and but I've, I've heard that you know if people people don't cough when they're absolutely wrapped by something so the moment you get someone coughing in the audience you know that like that person is 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 suitably tuned out of what i'm saying in that, order to l- cough. L- laryngitis with their <laughs> oxygen tank up to there you go excuse me this is art i'm failing in some way um uh yeah and 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 it's possible that in this debate that Molly and I was having I, I think she felt like I was being deliberately self-depreciating she was being annoyed by it but I was I was talking and speaking my truth about something and and I, and I was hyper aware because it was a brand you know, like no one ever heard it before I never even done it all the way through before um can we talk about the shift um from poetry to plays I mean partly mm. in a kind of craft sense but also cuz I'd really like to to hear about the the new play and what yeah. it's about and stuff uh yeah yeah so um for, for po- poetry in the place yeah um well it, it wasn't a deliberate choice to to write a play i wanted to write a uh, a poem that was a whole show i like the idea of coming on stage and just doing one big long story because i've been writing these ballad poems and they've been getting longer and longer the longest one i think was about sort of 10 minutes oh and then i wrote that wrote a whole a whole book so i wrote this poem called um 
the vile ascent of Lucy and Gore, which was a sort of and, and what an open uh, brackets and what, and what the people, people did. did. <laughs> Close brackets. Uh, I don't think there were even brackets there. That would have been the glam version if they put it in brackets. Um, but yeah, I'd written that, which you know, which was a, a, definitely a flawed piece. But it, but it was you know that was in, I'd written that in tight, and it was written in Octava Rima. I mean, it's, I'll set myself. It was a hell of a feat <laughs> to the right to write you know a, a twenty-minute piece. Yeah, Inu has Inu has just done his latest book, um, the the Half God of Rainfall is all is an entire book in like novella length book in. Terza Rima. Is it in Terza Rima? Goodness me. Yeah. Which I like didn't notice at first. Like I think he, I didn't notice at first. You didn't notice Terza Rima on the page. It's not, is it, is it, is it not written out? Is it written out? Uh, in, in, in I, it's, prose? um, it's written, no, it's written in lines, but I didn't notice it was, it was organized in Terza Rima until so a it, few it's pages. A, in. B, A, B, C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goodness and me. then I think he uses some kind of like quite good, like, um, slant rhymes as yeah, well yeah, yeah, yeah. but then i got a few well, page i got a f- i mean it was a few pages in luke i, did, I was like and then i was like oh shit is he <laughs> gonna do this for the whole shit he's doing it for the whole thing and it's um it's good it's not as thing, onerous as, but, but, as like but, you might you think. know and, and i think the slant rhymes are, are, are you know are absolutely mandatory for it not to be onerous i think um well that's great though isn't it I think it's great that that, that, that Inua is using I mean, he's had a hell of a year hasn't he you know? yeah and, it, um, well, and that's, and and that's the script he, for the play he's doing as well yeah exactly mm. so so it, I mean it, it allows um, it, it opens it, the whole thing up mm. to so many of us I mean I, I had so many meetings after um, I guess after Cynical Ballads as I was writing Johnny Bevan which I'll come back to uh, you know where I'd get brought in by publishers we love what you do write me a novel and I said but but I, I'm not good at writing a novel I'm good at writing poems so if you like what I do why don't you publish my poems oh no we can't do that no one wants if to if you poems. like what I do why don't you publish what I do it's <laughs> yeah. like getting someone in and go um uh so uh Michael Flatley we love the river dance thing we're wondering if you could open a cafe because <laughs> <laughs> because we are we, we, yeah because well, we, we run cafes <laughs> Here's a here's a coffee okay. concept for you, flatly white. Um, sorry, I had to. I apologise, Luke. For getting, but okay. I know what you mean, right? So, it's okay, a mixed okay. it's a mixed message, right? So, Isn't so, so, it? So, 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 yeah, that that, that, that aside. Um, but so I I wrote. Um, uh, I want to say I I had this idea for. Um, and I, you know, it, again, it was really. Uh, yeah, I, I think I've got a good business brain on me to, to a certain extent, but I don't. That, that's that, that's not where it starts. It always starts with writing what I want to write, and then thinking how best can I m- make this, you know, pay my mortgage. So, um, so with so I had this idea about this, um, it's, it became what I, what I learned from Johnny Bevan, and it was um, to write a story. It was uh, I, I, I like the idea of writing Bride's Head in Reverse. I, I really, growing up in the nineties, it, it wasn't. It was no longer cool to to be rich and and uh, and to be well off. It was. Um, you know, and Jarvis Cocker deals with it very well in Common People. This this idea that you know middle class kids were pretending to be from more working class backgrounds because it felt more real and more authentic. And I said, then that was that. Whereas in Brides Have Revisited, you you have a middle class character, an upper middle class character, enthralled to the, to this aristocratic family. I said, well, what if it was the other way around? What if the middle class character was enthralled to this, the authenticity of the working class experience? And then what that says about Blairism and what this is about New Labour. And I realised this idea was too long for a sort of. 10 minute you know ballad poem so I thought I'm going to write it as a whole show um, and I'd write it a bit more loosely I'd, I'd use various, various different rhyme form, um, verse forms I went through and when I wrote that and I, and I did it and, it and it felt quite successful in, in preview and then I had a bad preview and then my producer 
Paul Jellis said, I think you need a director on this. I think it's a bit all over the place. Can you say what, when you say you had a bad preview, just for people who are sort of not... Oh, okay. So, so, um, so, don't so, perform so, so, and... so, so before you sort of officially sort of launch and premiere a show, which is why I knew I wanted to do that at Edinburgh, because if you premiere at Edinburgh, you're open to so many more awards, particularly the Fringe First Award, which is a, a, a good thing to win. Um, so you, you can't win that if your show's been on tour for a year. You, you can have up to six previews. And so I very specifically did just six previews and, and built them as previews. Yes, and like this, this work is a work in progress, I think. So he said, oh, we'll get a director in. So we got this guy, Joe Murphy, who's a great director. And I was very excited to work with him. But and, can I, and, sorry, the thing I wanted to ask was like, how did you know it was a, when you say I had a bad, I had a bad preview. Oh, I'm I, like, I, I, what again, made you again, think again I felt the like... audience moving away from me okay. and, and, and they clapped limply at the end of it. And it just felt a bit confused and a bit, yeah. So the first thing Joe said was like, I will work on this, even though we've only got a month to get ready for Edinburgh. But there's certain things I want doing to this. Otherwise, I'm not interested in working on it. The first thing he said is because the whole thing was written in the third person about, you know, it was like Nick did this. Nick is the protagonist and Johnny is the antagonist. So Nick said this and Johnny said that. But it was a very close third person narrative to Nick. And uh, Joe said, I don't know who this person is on stage. I said, that's me, Sleep Right, the poet. I'm telling the story. And he's like, that's confusing. I, this should be in the first person. You should walk on stage and you should be Nick. And all of a sudden, it stopped being a long poem, which, uh, and, it, and, it, and it was a play. Because, of course, it was a play. Because, you know, I was playing a character, even though the character's quite similar to me. It wasn't me. It wasn't pretending to me. It had different life experiences to me. Um, and so that's how it ended up being a play. Oh, it's so fucking good getting a director who kind of gets it. Yeah, well, because well, you don't always get that as in poetry. It's not there necessarily there sort of like forte no. that area. That sounds that's awesome. So, so, so well, 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 I mean, oh, you could argue that he 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 didn't get it and was like, you need to make this more like what what I know. Yeah, uh, which, which is a play. Um, and actually, I think that was the right move because I. I, I First, you know, you know, we're six weeks off Edinburgh, and I've been given a note to change it from being third person to first person. Change something small that you'll easily be forgotten as you. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, but I felt sick when I got that note, and then I went through the play in my head, which I already knew. I already knew this whole piece, and I changed Nick to I. There was one rhyme that didn't work, and the whole I was like, oh. Yeah, he's really right. And I realised that it's so, you feel so much more emotionally connected to someone telling you their story on stage than you do to someone telling someone else's story on stage. So I, I immediately knew that was a really excellent, thr- a thrilling note. Like the most thrilling bit of feedback I've ever had in my life. I was like, holy fuck, I can just, this, this levels up so much more. So um, so that's that's why I started writing plays because I, I was I wanted to write a long poem. And, and um and uh, then Frankie Barr. Then I sort of I started off with that note. I am going to make this in the first person. And so Frankie Frankie Barr is, is about play. a nineteen um... eighties ranting poet, which is a uh, you know a very sort of universal subject for, uh, <laughs> for artwork. I, I really wanted to. I, I I mean yeah, but like Hamlet's about a Danish king. Yeah, 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 it's yeah, not yeah, like yeah, everyone's yeah. like oh yeah. No, no, we've no, no, all, no. We've I, all I, struggled I, to no, rule no, Denmark. No no no. You're, you're right. I, I I'm 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 being. And being a, I think that's a bit of false modesty there. I, I, I'm really pleased it's about that. I, um, so the, there is the, the, the spoken word scene or the live poetry scene, what you want to call it, is being much better documented these days. Um, but it wasn't for years, um, mainly because we didn't have the internet with which to document it in the same way. Um, and so it was this disjointed thing, as we, as we mentioned early on. You know, you go to Bristol, do the Bristol lot, and there was the Norwich lot, Sheffield lot, what have you. Um, and, um, I was always really interested in the, um, the tr- tradition I was coming from, and obviously the tradition of spoken stories goes back millennia, but I mean, the recent tradition, um, in a way that I felt like a lot of my, my peers weren't. Uh, I, I was important to me where, 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 I was, where it was coming from. And so I remember one night 
doing a gig with the two of the stockbroker in Belfast with uh, the rest of aisle 16. Yeah, I bet I bet he would have some um, feelings and opinions about the history uh, of the scene. And uh, Ross and Chris and Joel went off and just drunk with, with themselves and I just stayed with Attila. Um, and I was like, tell me stories about the 80s. <laughs> I, want, I want to know where it came that is, from. That is pushing it. And, open, and I should say, I really, really like Attila, so I'm not being... Um, he I'm doesn't not like Thatcher. He's mentioned that. He doesn't like Thatcher. He was, actually, that he's night, really he, nice. He, he, was, he was wearing a shirt. Nice a this is 2005. He was wearing a T-shirt that night that said, I still hate Thatcher. And uh, we thought a good way of endearing him ourselves with him was to say, oh, he's... She was all right, though, wasn't she? <laughs> She's, come she on, yeah, let it go, let it go, let it go. Um, so he told me stories about. So I was always very interested in the tradition in which it came from, and I felt like it was an untold story. And around the same sort of time, Tim Wells started doing his stand-up and spit blog, which I think is a really important bit of um, uh, storytelling, uh, cultural story, sort of cultural history. Sorry, uh, from that time. Um, and it's not a strict story of, of actually the Ranting Poets because Frankie Var, my character, is an imagined character. As the Ranting Poet scene died and was and, and reverted back to me in a couple of nights in London, I've got this character who comes along and sort of does the same thing, but sort of during the during the sort of um, C, um, C86 sort of um, era, which is like um, the wedding present and bands like that, which actually Attila goes, fucking wedding present, fucking student crap. He hates it, but... Yeah, so that sort of annoyed him. It didn't annoy him. He was very supportive. And yeah. nice, but it sort of annoyed him that I was attaching it to like music that he didn't like. Um, but yeah, I wanted to to write about about that, and I wanted to write a story about being on tour and a rock and roll story. Um, and it was, it was a really fun aesthetic to work with. Uh, much more fun than my current one, which is about political journalism, which is a, le- a less cool aesthetic to work so with. So this is this is your new one, is which I haven't seen because you haven't performed it yet. Although you've sent me as you called it the, early rushes. Uh, yeah, did you, would you? What did you refer to it the other day? Is the the disappearing trousers of um, Fizzlebert? Duff. I was, I, I was being. I, I don't know why. Uh, you're you're you being, you being cruelly satirical. I know, and I as, said as it. We I always thought... are. So people listening to us now, I think, are these guys? So what, what? What a respectful friendship. I think we always need microphones between us. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I sent. I sent it, and then I was like, does that seem like I'm no, being not, like jealous not, or barbed? No, of course not. But, I just. I, it's it's you and I talking in the way that we always talk. Lo- lo- Logan. 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 Dankworth, the, the, who the sounds remain, a little bit Luke, I have to say, like uh, Snoop Dogg's butler. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is Snoop Dogg's butler. That's but you only find that out at the end, so you've kind of blown that for, for the audience. So this is um, so it's uh, I'm feeling very excited about this. So you you want to talk about process? Yeah, um, I would. That's it. I like uh, to get so, you in the in the in the kind of catch you in the middle of it while it's yeah, still kind of like well, in the larval stage. Me, you've caught me. Uh, yeah, maybe it's in the middle. So can I suggest well, Luke by little note? Maybe cast it in the first person. I love plays and poetry that does that. Okay, well, I'll make... I will need a directorial credit. Uh, (laughs) uh, Which is what I like, like a mention on my website. (laughs) All good good for SEO. It it costs me nothing (laughs) to write your name on my website. I'll do it. I write it on every page. Um, (laughs) It doesn't matter. No one cares. Um, So this... So what I wanted to write about as I want to say, each of my plays, this is man the third, have been sort of coming of age stories, a personal sort of working out of shit story uh, with a backdrop of um, a political time. So the first one was over, was, was sort of, you know, watching New Labour come to power and the hope that that brought. And then where that leaves the British working class. 
it's about and about class that that play as well about a you know, middle class character and a working class character and how they are how their lives are diverged by by their beginnings despite you know the, the end the end of class according to you know or, or the or the hope of the end of class that came with new labor the second one is about the 1980s um and about um well it was it was a way of me really talking about um what was happening with the labor party in 2015 2016 2017 um and, and still today uh, the divisions of the left without trying to write about the current divisions of the left um with it changing constantly so it was a way of going back to that time and, and, and what happens when people become so um uh so entrenched that they, they can't compromise them and what happens to a lack of compromise and how that reflects on your personal relationships you know um, and this third one is is now set in, in uh, over Brexit, and it's following on from that. Um, this idea. So, so, so Johnny Bevan was about believing in something, you know, finding your belief in something again. Frankie Var, which was a, a less 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 of a palatable thing, was like, actually, do you know what, guys? Compromise is quite good. It's, it's, it finds belief in something. It's, 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 it's a hard it, sell, a, but that's a, like a what thorny, art is, right? Yeah, an easy thing. sell would be like. Yeah, you know what? I've identified some baddies. Well, and... I just felt a little bit at the end of Johnny Bevan. I was slightly playing to, and I think you know, on reflection, I was slightly playing to my Labour voting audience. Who the say? Well, I mean, I wrote it before before Corbyn, but but I'm going around the country, and so often the people you end up staying with in houses, um, you know, they out themselves as hardcore Labour activists. Early on, you'd be like, ah, oh, my people, <laughs> and then we'd sit around and talk about politics. And I, so I wasn't surprised at all to see Corbyn. You know, they take because I just knew that there was there was there was a whole I mean, generally the Labour members out there were very you know were, were desperate to get back to you know um, to a sort of form of real socialism, or you know just something that something like that with the you know the, maybe maybe someone who wasn't going to like vote to renew Trident. Yeah. Maybe someone who that wasn't shit. going to take us to war, like yeah, that I stuff, think you know yeah. that stuff, and not not in any sort of you know hard left ways. It's been characterised, if you know this, um, so. But I I felt in that that both sides of Labour were I just I felt really fucking <laughs> disappointed in both sides of the Labour Party. They were like um, did you, you, and, you were and, talking and, like and, two and, children and, were uh, arguing, fighting in the back of the car. Yeah, well, I I would have you know it, it would have been it's 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 a much more enjoyable thing to have someone say believe in something guys believe get back to believing in something and it's, um, and it's an addictive the, 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 thing as a as a yeah, performer right the, the, if you can yeah. do that you, it, the, you can feel to really have somebody like believe in all of his shit and be out there shouting all this his truth and actually at the end realize that he he needs to fucking shut up and listen to the other side so there's that and then so this third piece is more about um it's following on from this idea of compromise but it's about about trust and conflict and, and, and what happens when trust breaks down is that, that you inevitably head towards conflict and about how um, the beginnings of shying away from conflict is to to give up something, to give up some sort of piece of armour, some piece of privilege to sort of say, I don't, I can't, it's about almost like a leap of faith to sort of say, I will, I will put my sword down here even though I don't know whether you're going to pick it up and then you'll have two swords and I'll have none. Um, and it's about that. Um, uh, and and and, it, and it's about a relationship. It's it's about and so it's a, also the characters have sort of been different ages. So there was it was um, so that so there were students um, in in the first one. In the second one, he was sort of in his mid twenties. 
Um, and there's, there's a relationship in that as well. And this character is now in his mid thirties. So do you see um, these pieces as kind of like not that you'd have to have seen them all, but like do they feel it feels like from the creation point of view that they feel a bit like a triptych? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's a trilogy, and I, I definitely sort of want to make something different next, something wildly different. Uh, you know, but they're a trilogy, and in this trilogy, they are political and personal, and there's there's, there's an election of some sort happens. Because um, this, because this, this latest one, Logan Dankworth, is kind of like has Brexit as the yeah. Which, back, you know, which, which what, actually, although what I'm doing is I'm removing every, I'm removing the word Brexit from every single scene. There's there's, there's going to be no mention of the word Brexit until we get to the very last scene. So it's so it's sort of there because I feel like you don't need to do that. You don't you don't need to explain what Brexit is. Everyone knows what Brexit is right now. Um, and so I, 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 you know, I, I've got you know. I'd say first draft. It's it's draft eleven, but um, you know, it's kind of feels like it's first completed draft, and I did work in progress. And what I need to take out of it now is I'm just cutting down some of the political stuff because we kind of you know, all you need you make you just need to make allusion to it because actually we we can fill that stuff in ourselves because it's going on around us at all times. And there's little moments like I've got a recounting of the Farage and Geldof on their boats on the Thames. Do you remember mm, that? The, yeah. And they called it the Battle of the Thames. My character goes, the Battle of the Thames. Is that what I've been fighting for? Uh-huh. Is this our Berlin Wall? The Battle of the Thames. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so so little bits like that make it in. But but on, on the whole, it, 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 again, it's always the way. Like I come up with a idea and I'm interested in the politics and and, and my thoughts on it my big opinions on politics and I think right I've got to have a character to to, to 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 go in this world and the more I write the character the more the character grows and the people around him grow and they fill the story and then the politics gets pushed right right to the sort of background which is which is the way it should be because people are much more interesting than than politics I think and the politics need to underpin it and they are they are the basis and they are they are they are the thing sort of controlling what the person does because the people end up being sort of psyched you know they, they become metaphors for the politics and, and this relationship in in Logan Dankworth is a sort of metaphor for Brexit in a way to an extent is a metaphor for Brexit but it's like but, I think... but then those people have to be real and and then and they have to do and then often they do things and have feelings that end up taking up much more of your time which is right because that is how we connect to it and, and by connecting to those characters we'll then hopefully gain a better understanding of, of the politics behind I, it I think I think if you're just spoon feeding people a sort of received position, that is one. I mean, so it can be effective if it's already their position, right? That I yeah. like to hear things that confirm what I already believe. I'm no different to anyone else. But a lot of those positions that are like political positions, we originally arrived at them through emotion, right? Like mm. somebody you loved. Yeah, express those positions which, which, which is why which is why i leave on that vote because it was a emotionally a much uh, a, a much better argument you know it it, it made you know it's, it's much more easy to feel emotional about the, the the country you know the land land of your birth and upbringing and, and everything that's great about it and to feel feel good about that than it is to feel feel emotional about a, a political institution uh, which you probably don't know very much about you know and and that's exactly what interesting in cameron's memoirs which have come out this week for those listening in the future, um, he talks about Boris Johnson saying that that's why he was trying to take that side because it was it was a it was a more poetic, more emotional, nostalgic side to take. It was it was it was it was more fun to be on on, on the leave leave campaign. Can, can, the, do you think? Campaign. I mean, I I know that like Logan Dentworth, you have a you have a tendency to write. Um, I would say like ho- like hopeful tragedies with a vaguely kind of post-apocalyptic feel, mm. even though they're set in the real world. Mm. Like, the, often 
it feels like I suppose like the word that I'm like that comes to mind when I'm thinking about your plays mm. is like aftermath that like we're seeing someone like in the ruins of something yeah. or looking back at the like skeleton or the crater of something yeah. and reflecting on it which I suppose is like you know true of the structure of like Brideshead revisited right mm. that, and, and and what I wondered is do and this is a not strictly a craft question so much as a political question what i'm just wondering like what do you think that what do you think that do you think there's hope for this country is what i'm saying what do, do, are you a like naturally an optimist politically or do you see us like inevitably following a kind of a downward trajectory I, I, of our follies or like can we make progress what how do you how do you feel at the moment where are you I, at i always feel to an extent like a few things on this i feel the doom mongering sits wrong with me um i whenever i sort of take that slightly do so i so my dad has different politics to me one of the things we like to do much to the much to the annoyance of my mother is 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 discuss those differences of opinion <laughs> over nice sunday lunches and stuff um and i used to get very sort of Hit up with my dad and very sort of angry and and he'd always win the argument because uh, as as the reverend richard coles once said to me he said whenever you get indignant you've lost the argument you always look ridiculous no one ever looks good when they're indignant um and it's completely right and i think the left has has a, uh, a tendency to be indignant sometimes and also sort of do monger and say we're all fucked we're all fu- we're all going to fucking hell what irritates me is when you see people in in positions of immense privilege you know like big media personalities or you know successful uh, musicians or you know people with lots of money and privilege they might not have come from money and privilege but they've definitely got it now just saying well, well the world is fucked right now the world is you know they go, I would say uh, even even if they I, qualified I, it with right now Luke I would have a bit more understanding they're all that I've seen people just going you know what like what's going to take over is like a kind of form of eco-fascism like this is inevitable there's no turning it back we're all fucked and I'm like just, uh, and I'm like help helpful well, I'm glad that you took the time to share that. That's going to what, what, definitely help what, what the situation. What is that doing? Also, again, like talking to my dad, he'll go, oh. I mean, he, he, he is, a, you know, I do feel like he is slightly sort of pushing this button a little hard at the moment to, to sort of justify his Brexit position. But he is saying, oh, it'll be all right. They're doom-mongering, you know, it'll be. And you, you look at the projection, people, you know, the Guardian's saying, leaving without a deal is going to shrink our economy by 3%. Like, oh, the way you've been talking about it rather made it sound like it was going to shrink it by 50%. Like, I mean, you know, come on. I know 3% will mean job losses and it mean a lot of pain, but I mean, 3%. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, that's not that bad, is it? That people have been talking about it like it will be the end of the world and there will be tanks on the street and stuff. And that might be the case, right? And I might, I might, it might come back to, to have to choke these words down like cold sick, but I do. I, 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 well, this is you're talking about this idea of like you said putting your sword down first it's hard to con- I've been talking to a lot of academics recently about yeah. like me- medicine and one of the things that they're really struggling with at the moment that when I was talking to someone who was talking about what we can conclude from um, studies versus what we can't he said the problem is as soon as you start approaching some literature with skepticism you immediately a bunch of cranks jump in and go and this is why you can't trust doctors. And he's like, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying be careful how you interpret this one study. Mm. And what and, and the the thing that was happening with Brexit is it's it's hard to put your sword down first without people around in your immediate community thinking that you are switching sides. Yeah. Well. Well. I mean, I just also yeah. Well, they can. 
think what they like. <laughs> I um I think it's great that I live in I I I've, I've, and I found, I thought this for a long time living where I live, which is out in Bungie, which is not you know not living in a big city. Um, I so my character Logan Dankworth does live in London, and he does have he doesn't have an insight. I have not give, afforded him an insight that I feel that I have not living in London uh, and for not being friends with just purely um, other people in my line of work uh, not not to say that my friends are all, 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 all uh, um, rabid Brexiteers actually they're, they're, they're not you know they're, they are not too dissimilar from me a lot, lot, lot of them not all of them but a you know, number of them are graduates and people they work in the charity sector or a lot of my friends are craftsmen actually or teachers and you know like I'm friends with Thatcher and you know build you know not not Thatcher like to be clear uh, I'm not friends with Thatcher no I was but she died it was very <laughs> sad. Uh, we, were, we were the best friends um I the, the thing that I dislike the most is being treated like an idiot and I feel like I'm treated like an idiot by the rhetoric of both sides like I just you no know it's not true it's rhetoric it's not true um I I'm just in search, desperately in search of truth. I think a lot of us are. I think feel that's my thing at the moment, um, and I don't care what side it comes from. Did you watch the Thatcher documentary? No, on BBC Five Part. That it, it was the. Be- I mean, it's interesting to find out about that, and I, I know a fair bit about Thatcher, but it was just so good to watch something that I really felt was balanced. I really felt it was balanced. There was a, they didn't hold back on talking about her personal. Uh, um, failings and shortcomings and um her, but they also just didn't do that sort of wicked witch of the west kind of thing that which we've always heard on the left and i found it really great it could have it didn't matter what it was the subject was about it was just nice to see something that was intellectual and didn't treat its audience like idiots and was balanced um and there's lots of other examples of that but i'm just picking that as mm. one, one i've watched recently um so yeah i i, I am very much would think the sword should be put down there's absolutely no way you can um, reverse Brexit. I think Joe Swinson's position on this is mad. Right, you can't reverse Brexit without a second referendum. Because not because I mean I I I'm no fan of referendia, referendum. I think plural? I think I think you I think referenda is the technical plural, referenda. but I would imagine that referendums is accepted. I'm fan of that. That's um, a friend of mine always says that like, like they're the favourite political tool of, of of fascists because they they give them like an, an iron rod to to beat people with. This is the will of the people. I understand that we're in a parliamentary democracy. However, it was sold to people as whatever you say, we will do. Right? Okay. So you can't cancel. It does seem mad to sort of leave without any kind of deal. That makes good sense. So so I've, I've put that sword down a long time ago. I did vote remain. Uh, but you're not with any sort of fervent passion, um, you know. I, I think, you know, I think if you if yeah. Anyway, I'm, it's boring to get into the whole Brexit thing. I just think um, I just quite like a sort of nice, sober, calm, truthful way through this. Um, and I, 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 and I'm sure lots of people feel the same. I'm just sick of rhetoric, both from my side of the political spectrum and from the other side of the political spectrum. And I'm sure there's some people are worse than others. That's the thing they go, oh, but they're much worse than us. They lied. Their lies are worse than our lies. Well, fucking stop. Everyone stop lying on both sides, you know? Um, so It's like, sometimes it feels a bit like someone like masturbating at a hanging and they're going, do yeah. you think these two acts are morally equivalent? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, but you, you, you don't have to do what, <laughs> one of us, you just <laughs> choose to stop. Hanging. Oh, that's good. But um, and how? Because it's made me actually a lot less political in myself. I've been writing poems, writing lots of very personal poems about my feelings and shit, and it's been great. Um, and, I mean, I have obviously written a play that's based that has Brexit in the background of it. Can I like, ask about how limit. it's man- how those things are like manifested in? Because I'm going to ask you to read a couple of yeah. a poem or something in a minute. But I was just wondering if you could talk because you said the politics kind of like retreat; they become the backdrop 
to a character's journey and conflict and experience. And I'm wondering how that then is manifested in Logan Dankworth's journey, right? Because I think that's a really interesting thing for people. Because a lot of people can get like big themes they want to tackle or they can think of character conflicts. And it's quite, I get a lot of emails from writers who, who... struggle to work out how to marry those two and I'm I'm just like to hear how that then is manifested in one character. Yeah, well I mean he is someone who on a sort of on a sort of practical level his obsession with his job and um his rising fame he's he's a, he's a comedian who becomes a columnist which I think it very is a bit of endemic of of where our politics is going wrong with no disrespect to Stuart Lee or Frankie Boyle but you know when you've got Stuart Lee and Frankie Boyle because of their immense celebrity being the most uh, most quoted um co- political columnists anytime there's like there's probably people better qualified to to offer political analysis than those guys although they often you know their insights are often, I'm not knocking their insights but it's just sort of I think that in a way the the, the the celebrity political comedian columnist is so he's one of those he becomes one of those and they become successful and so he's obsessed with that and he's obsessed with a fight he wants to be part of a fight but he kind of forgets why so it's I think Brexit and, and any sort of great political turmoil are, are caused by people looking for a fight and who thrive on the fight and who want the fight and every day wake up pleased to have the fight. And I think Twitter is full of this. Um, I no longer have Twitter on my phone and I'm happier for it. You know what? Um, I quit Twitter uh, at least until the new year, sort of five weeks ago. And I feel... I saw you tweeting about it. <laughs> yeah, I know I've set up a bot. I've set up a bot that randomly... <laughs> yeah, I know I get the joke. Yeah. But 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 I feel like, I, I feel like I've cut, I feel like I've escaped yeah. a cult. Well, I haven't, I haven't I've, quit it. I, if I need to go on it to promote a gig and stuff like that, I do that. But, uh, I, um, but, but, but I don't have it on my phone. And a little while ago, I put it back on my phone because I thought, oh, maybe I'm cured now. And all of a sudden, I was just on it. It's just, it's just yeah. And it's not even, it's not even just the, 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 the fightiness and misery on Twitter. It's just Twitter. It's just, just the actual nature of social media, yeah. which is very addictive. Right, but, I, but, I, but I haven't gone off Instagram because I just looking at, you know, smug pictures of my friends, I find slightly less offensive than listening to the... Yeah, Instagram to, to is the like, sometimes I was just like going, here's, here's a nice avocado salad I've made. And I'm not like, you're wrong! <laughs> Um, so, um, so how do I manifest in, in Logan? So, so on one hand, he's you know he's a, obsessed with his work, and so it's killing his relationship. But also, he's becoming, um, yeah, it's it's about this. It's, it's, but he's he's he is obsessed with the fight and and, and the conflict. And um, his partner and he have stopped trusting each other, and so they don't they're not willing to see the other one's point of view. So she wants to move out of London, and he doesn't want to move out of London, and they just are unable to talk about it. Um, one of the things I'm going to do in my next draft is I, 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 I need to. She needs to. Megan needs. To, Megan is his partner. She needs to have. Um, she needs to have a bit more. I need a bit more of her. I've got him worked out quite well. I've not got enough of her, which was kind of deliberate because I quite wanted her to not speak until the end when she speaks the truth. But I think the thing we just need a few sort of signifiers that's coming throughout. But that's that's a technical question <laughs> point for someone who's read the script. Um, but uh, yeah. So 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 so. I, I, there, I saw similarities to the end of a relationship, uh, to the way that um, you know Brexit has been conducted in this country, um, and because because all conflict is, is results from a lack of trust, and so lack of trust between the, the leavers and remainers, but lack of trust between Britain and the EU, um, and um, yeah, and, and it's not and the, and not understanding other points point of view. That's where compromise comes from. So, so there's a, to me, there's an obvious metaphor there. 
not least because Brexit's talked about a divorce deal and stuff like that, you know. So so that was my first little thought on it in a way was, you know, could could you talk about Brexit in terms of, of, of a relationship that ends? Um, my own marriage uh, ended um, a couple of months after the Brexit vote. So I, I, I was, you know, going through a lot of that stuff that summer. So, so it sort of brought it home to me. I've got a friend actually who's, whose marriage ended on Brexit day. I was like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, but um, uh, yeah. So, so and, it's, and I guess so like acknowledging I like... The, I don't want to give too much of the story away. Yeah, guess, sure, sure. Yeah, but yeah. like, I think like the, that kind of idea about... Um, I think that's maybe one thing that we... I know it's not just about Brexit, but I think that's one thing that maybe doesn't get talked about because there's so little space of vulnerability in the conversation. It's like the sense of like how emotional people feel and how on both sides some of those emotions are like completely legitimate like there's there's some grief and there's some sense of loss and unless you've got like the trust for like people like say we were going to have say we were going to leave in a way that was like managed and orderly then you'd have to have some kind of discussion where it's like how do we have a national conversation so we're all on the same page and that we acknowledge that for some people this is very painful and we don't call them like fucking idiots for feeling that. And if we did have another referendum and we stayed, how do we have a conversation where we're like, you're not stupid for having voted the way you did when you wanted to leave? And cranked up to the point where where, where it it is sort of almost physically sort of repulsive to them to be one or the other. And I just... I mean, yeah. I can't but think that's a bit fucking stupid. I mean, really, in what way? I, I, ju- I mean, I, I really struggle to understand how someone feels subjugated to Europe in, in their day-to-day life. And I really struggle to find how people would be so heartbroken because they can't, because they need a visa to go to Europe, right? Like, I mean, come on. Like, you know, it, you know, I, I think it's, it, this is not as big as everyone's making it out to be. But of course people are making it feel that way because it's been cranked up so much by the, by the, the vitriol and hatred on either side. Um, yeah, and, and because, I mean, in, and, in fairness... And, and the word fascist has been thrown around on both sides. Um, well, and, I, I mean, Luke, like a, a shop got, like, a, you know, shops got their, like, windows smashed in after the Brexit vote. It's, I you know, I think there's a bit of moral hazard in sort of being sort of white middle class... English people, it's hit certain groups harder. There's been a rise in racist incidents. There's been a rise in homophobic attacks. For those people, yeah, but, 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 it but, has but, been part pardoned. of what I'm saying is, 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 is okay. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, but I, I uh, is also, but, but, but my, my criticism stands to the people getting so het up that, that, that they're, they're smashing in shops. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what sure, the fuck? Yeah. Like, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, I don't understand. I don't understand that. I mean, I I know that it comes it comes from anger about other things, but but this this level of um, identifying so much with either the EU or Britain, like both of those things seem kind of you know we need to stop living in the news, which is yeah. which, is, which has been a big big theme of of um of, of yeah of, of an, I mean I mean yeah I've got, I've got the opening poem in my last poetry show. Um, Good morning, Britain is, is about exactly that about, about not living in the news. Um, Johnny Bevan is kind of and, about and do not you think and do news. you think that there's been times in your life where you, you've been someone who's like often been like really interested in politics yeah, and things who's politics. who's lived who's lived in the news a bit? Yeah, I do, but I don't. I, but I don't, but I don't, and I don't know whether this is my privilege speaking or not. But um, but I don't think so. I don't, I don't think anyone's more naturally inclined to, to live in the news. You know, I I I, I 
I've also been able to sort of go. I've also been able to understand the news is not me. I am not the yeah. news, right? I have a, a, well, a former friend who I based Johnny Bevan on. Um, you say how are you, and what he would do is say the news at you. He'd say, "Well, we're still in the EU, and there's more Muslims in the country." And it's like, well, that's not you. That's not happening to you, right? You know, like that's the news. How are you? Uh, and it's almost like the sense of self gets completely eradicated. I, by, by, I by, definitely by, have by, experienced by this... that per- personally. I've made that mistake myself. Um, on the not sorry, not saying that there's too many Muslims in the country, but like on <laughs> not enough living no. living uh, my sense of identity being parlayed yeah, no, almost couple, entirely a, a, a through couple, my couple of times on Twitter you, you, you've talked about about you, you've linked personal misery to 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 the yeah. global situation yeah and I think the left do this quite a lot uh you know how are you you know well we're the fucking Tories are still in power it's like well I know and, and I know that's affecting some people you know really in, in a very real way and I, and that is something that we do need to fight against of course it is um but I, I think that makes sense to me right okay we need to get the Tories out because austerity is doing this and it's killing these people you know I mean I was in Brighton the other day um, as I often am, and you know, just, just the, the number of tents that are, that are on the seafront. Like, you can't, you know, the homeless problem is massive, but they're, they're real problems, right? Belonging or not belonging to the EU, I know it has obviously it has effects, but it doesn't really in that every day sense, which is why I think the Labour Party's position of like, we need to get this fucking sorted and get back down to the real business of improving people's lives. Because it is this horrible media shit show. It is, it is a, Brexit is a media shit show. It's, it's the fucking media is the greatest gift to the media and no matter what's and that's kind of what my piece is about which, which is about you know someone someone using this to raise themselves up and increase their profile and being heard and being part of the fight and being edified by this by this thing that actually makes you know you know it's not it's a fucking distraction on the whole would, so yeah would, would, so, yeah. You, would you I was wondering if we could finish with you Reading some poems about yeah. not about Brexit, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Um, okay, I'll maybe read... Shall I read uh, three sort of short pieces? Maybe? Yeah, if that's okay, all right, okay, that'd yeah, be sure. perfect. Luke. Okay, so, first one is called Status Update, to follow on from our um, talk about um, social media, and it's the misery it inflicts. Status Update. Just one more minute screen time, please, to check how long my screen time's been. I can't settle. My brain's uninsulated wires fizz under the floorboards, burn up my thoughts like dust motes. Please don't touch that bake light switch. I think we need to get a man in. All these screens, these grim receipts of status spiked on cluttered desktops in my mind. Today, I spent three hours watching e-ink notepads being unboxed. I learned third-hand a well-known racist commentator said a racist thing and scrolled until I found the thing then dived below its line. Let outrage bleach the gutters of my mind. I heard the brain is wider than the sky. Well, the skies round here are huge and grey and I've got nothing to say. I have rendered every stunning vista into wallpaper. I used to think that cynics were the clever ones, that treadmill low-fat cynicism that sees the fault in everything before they try to reel you in. But cynics don't just see what's wrong. They accept it. I don't know what I want. Can't picture myself 20 years from now. I'm hasty thumbs, erroneous corrections, fidgeting the flesh clean off my bones, a fatic vocal tick, the ground floor of a tower block. All that weight. So uh, that's that one. 
which I think might be the opening to my new collection. The next one is, um, all right, so um, I like to read contemporary poetry, as, as we all do, uh, and I'm not immune from feeling uh, jealous <laughs> of other people's success. So I read this poet called uh, uh, Richard Osmond, who's um, got a book out with, I think it's Picador, and he writes, he writes in a way that I could never write. He writes about, he writes about the earth, he writes about nature, and it's beautiful and I'm always very interested in that um, but also like I kind of think that's just not what I do so like I can, I can enjoy it in a way that and then I read his biog and uh, his biog say, describes him as a professional forager so I wrote this the other poet the other poet is a professional forager of course he is naturalist by day and bard by night the utter bastard imagine him Scrawling by the open fire, the shepherd's pie, the glass of red, the coarse well-hold jumper, barber hung and dripping on the flagstone, no, not a barber, something as efficient, but unbranded. It's me who owns the barber for my infrequent country strolls. I bet he's never bitched about a shortlist or massaged his Instagram. I doubt he'd even heard about the prize, the name of which is stickered on his book. He'd have been too busy living a life not built on brag or self, his every rumination anchored in layers of rich and mulchy earth. Yes, far less chance of him just floating off. And I say that with ultimate respect to Richard Osmond, who I think is a great poet. Uh, that's a poem about me, <laughs> as you could probably tell. Right, okay, I'll do you one more. This is about uh, my dad. And it's called Clocks. I don't think, I mean, I explained, but my dad made, my dad's, so my dad, uh, his dad was a doctor and uh, he went to a boarding school. And what my dad's really good at is making things. He is just incredible at it. You know, with his, working with his hands, he was always very good at woodwork. But And I think really he should have been an engineer. That would have been the perfect job for him. But it, I, I think it was sort of deemed that that wasn't really a suitable job for him to, to go into. We talk about being trapped by our class. We get trapped in different ways. Obviously, you know, he's obviously from a position of privilege, but still, he didn't. I don't think did exactly what he would have, you know, loved to have done with his life. Um, and um, so he worked in an office, but but he made things in his head of workshop, and he made beautiful carriage clocks. So off um, from Georgian designs. So these were some of the very early clocks you'd have in the house, and they they are quite complicated with all their workings and show, and then they'd have them under a glass dome. And they're amazing. I could tell they were amazing when I was a kid, but I just grew up with all these things. I ha my dad's house is full of clocks. Like of, of these... I think I, I would I've seen yeah, some of them when I came around. I think I did, yeah. And you would have noticed it in a way that it just was yeah, sort of, you know. So anyway, I was thinking about this um, clocks. Condemned to office work in London. Your workshop was your weekend refuge. The thick smell of machine grease, corkscrews of brass filings on the lino, and against the window that colossal lathe, the colour of naval warships. Out of this industrial den emerged the skeleton clocks you made from intricate Georgian design. A hundred perfect bits machined in brass and kept under the glass domes you'd wear white gloves to lift each Sunday night, deftly wind each tricky mechanism. And every January, you put them forward at the Model Engineers exhibition. Once, I fought to stay awake to see you when you came home late. You crept into my room to uncase the gold medal you had won and whispered, 
pretty good, eh? You let me in. And though I never found the knack for making things or helping in the workshop, I learned from you the pride that comes from skill. And it's your clocks that come to mind now as I walk slowly through the cardiac wing, past doorway after doorway, framing grey-skinned men, balding and babyish and hospital grounds left open at the chest, like shirts ripped in bar fights, almost missing you, so haggard with the IV in your arm, the clocks. I think about the clocks you filled our house with years ago, when we had all that time. Um, I, I, I read that piece, I think you shared it on, online, Nick, and um, I know it doesn't, I don't need to step into it, but I think um, that last piece is such a sort of wonderful um sort of encapsulates so many of the things that we've been talking about and, and where it. you've come with your piece and uh where, with your work and and why and like the real value of having the kind of bravery not to just shout at um institutions which can feel like the real act of rebellion but being a man and being able to stay with your feelings and see things and I love that line I'm sorry if I misquote it but cynics don't just see the truth they Salt faults don't see don't just see faults they accept them it's really really good and I love how you get you've got the space in your poetry to um have very closely observed things and then you can put in a kind of maxim or kind of like idea that sort of like you've created a kind of ecosystem for it. Yes, I think maybe if you if you come up um, in a different in the different tradition, if you come up in that more sort of page poetry tradition, you're you're sort of shy. To, you know, you're you're shy. You're maxim shy because yeah. you feel you feel there's something cheap. Whereas obviously, you know, we we are not very far removed. You know, on the performance side, from uh, from advertising slogan is, you know, like mm. I mean, writing writing a good poems a bit like writing. I mean, in fact, like I used to characterise certain poems as advert poems. We would talk about a subject often in a negative way as opposed to a positive way, but it but but it would be a sort of you know a series of sort of slogans. Have you read Have you read Keep the Aspidistra Flying? Uh, that is the only George Orwell novel that I have not Luke, read. Luke, you've got to. I've even it. read The Clergyman's Daughter. You've got to read it. It's like yeah. about a guy who wants to be a serious poet and is being called to be um to write slogans for advertising and as the is, book goes on he poem, builds is, this is, poem is this the book that starts with him eating a hot dog and he bites into it and so it no. tastes like what, what, is that something about flags or run up more flag no that's not no, even more he's book. it's i would i would just say like you got to, to read it like i i like oh i got to the end of the book and i like openly wept like i was like this is too much it's too close it's too poignant but all yeah. that kind of like small room like somebody struggling against their self and this character who starts off as a grotesque and then despite yourself you start to get invested in them being okay it's you, fantastic you talk about sort of acts of rebellion and not being against institutions i mean it's true i think we forget i think on the left we forget because we it's too, it's too close to that thatcher quote but of course society is made up of individuals and if all the individuals are nice people who are in touch with their feelings and not people who are looking for a fight, this is kind of what Logan Dank was about, then um, then we're not going to have those big horrible <laughs> fights, are we? You know, like if we all work, um, you know, we all work at being better people 
that that is you know it, it is it is it is political in a way and i'm not going to say actually the most political thing i could do is write a sad poem about my dad because it's not that but however i th- i don't you I, know I, what that, luke that, i think you that, can that, say in a funny voice i i have to say that that would be more or less at the moment like political I, well, is well, contextual and it's historically contextual i, I think it's pretty i think it's, i think i I that has been my response to to in the I thought a bit like my character I thought God would be great if we went back to the eighties and the Berlin Wall and Tiananmen Square and all that stuff happening right you know that's that's how Logan Dyke starts you know he says he says I believe that Fukuyama line the end of history and I'd live through it but what fucking idiot lives to the end of history and I was desperate for like he's desperate for like you know to have have the um to have all that stuff happen and my response to it when it has happened has just been like ah uh, you know it's it's um. It was a lot more fun trying to write the drama into the politics when there wasn't as much. Now all the drama is there. It's like Trump. I like the Trump is like the, 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 the satire is dead. I mean, we used to joke about this with George Bush. We didn't know how lucky yeah. we were, you know. Yeah. Uh, Trump. I find Trump so uninteresting. Like I, 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 he's one of the most boring. I find it so dull. It's so dull. It's just too much. It's like it, it's collapsed under its own weight. I don't find it in any way interesting. I just feel so worn out and sad when I think about that um, I don't quite feel the same way about our politics I think there's, there's more in there I think it's more maybe because I'm more engaged with it but it doesn't you know it's not it's not this great satirical gift it's it's just yeah I, I've had felt like I've had nothing to say about nothing Trump because he's just like such a just an empty vessel it's yeah. just like that's it you're, yeah. see, you're seeing it. We, we worked it out immediately. Yes, yeah, like uh, I can't uh, expose uh, it to you. I can't go, let me point out, I think that you're going to lose a certain amount of respect for this fellow when I yeah. show you well, what well, an idiot at least, at least with Boris Johnson, there has been some sort of, I mean, these days now, he's, he's become more of a Trumpian figure, isn't he? But I, but I, th- I think certainly in, in the old days, I mean, I, I, I've written lots about Boris Johnson in, in the past. My first sort of big satirical political poem was, was, a, was a, a pastiche of Boris Johnson called Duddy Livingstone. Um, and, and, and I thought that was interesting about about the way that media. I thought it was very interesting the way that we responded to him and the media responded to him. I think it's less interesting now, but I, I think with Trump, it's it's never been particularly interesting. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I would. It might be more if you were if you if you're American. If you, like, yeah, yeah. I think we, we haven't we've got with, much with, less at stake. With we? Johnson, I feel like him and Trump are the kind of the, like the malignant, obvious stage of a of a kind of cultural disease, like. You know, Boris Johnson starts with Mr. Toad, right? Mm. Mr. Toad, before we meet him, Ratty vouches for him. He says, look, he's going to look, he's going to, a lot of people think he's not very nice, a bit sent, a bit incredibly selfish, privileged, up himself. But he, he really loves his, he, he really loves his friends and he has these manias and where he forgets everyone around him. But just under, but Ratty vouches for him. And that's why when we meet Toad and we spend all this time with him, he's he's a fucking horrible. He like and he's wicked to everyone around him. He ruins lives. He gets people to cover for for him. We like Badger. Badger is like the is, is this class traitor who is prepared. Is, he's this working class character, but he knows his place on the estate. He lives in a buried Roman villa, and he's this person. We see it's this Roman villa that's been buried, and we see that. Badger has figured out he can have at this place if he like allies. Toad's dad has said to Badger, "Look, my son is an idiot, but he's going to inherit all this. I need you to manage the estate, right?" But our love and our fondness and our willingness to indulge Toad, like that, is what we are paying for 
now. And you know what? There is a humanity to him. Um, and in, in the books, there's a development to his character that actually turns it back on us, where Toad learns, he actually learns to be modest right at the end. And everyone starts praising him. Mm. He doesn't feel in any way more modest. He's like, oh, people are essentially hypocrites. As soon as I start pretending to be modest rather than being honest and saying I like myself, everyone starts. So he becomes David me. Cameron. Yeah. yeah, 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 and it's <laughs> and it's it, it, it's incredible and it's breathtaking. But I think our willingness to indulge that, and I know you've written about this as well, and that's what. But when we actually see it in our face, it's like we've known this for ages, and and now it's like the other shoe dropping, and and now the bombs are falling, and we're like, ah. Oh. Um, that's how I feel about it anyway. But he is funny and have I got news for you. So. <laughs> um, thanks very much for coming on the My show, Luke. It was Tim. really, really nice chatting to you. Yeah. And um, if people want to find your work, check your stuff out and they would like to catch you live, how's the best way that they can look that stuff up well, and I find mean, out what you're doing? Uh, I, I, people always ask this question, but they know that. You just Google me, don't you? <laughs> what? <laughs> but I do. I will say this. I have, I, have a, I have a website that I update all the time. This so is the thing. Different people good, use. There's a variety yeah, yeah, of mediums, I, I, and some I people think, don't yeah, update I mean, stuff. I mean I, do, I mean, I do talk to people on other things, but just go to my website, lukewright.co.uk, because it's got my full gig list on there, and it's got Tim um, Clare's name on every page. Luke, Tim Clare's name on every page. It will do by the time this hits the shelves, the podcast shelves. Um, okay. Thanks very much, Luke. And everyone else listening, if you've enjoyed the show, then um, you know what to do. Share it far and wide and uh, review and uh, rate it. Um, and I wish you all very, very happy and fruitful writing weeks. <laughs>